0: Well, we're in our series, The Twelfth Man, and notice last week how Peter had exerted leadership amongst the 120 when he, when he stood up and he pointed out that, hey, we need to fill this position that has been vacated by Judas. And we got into details about Judas, talked about why they needed to replace Judas in terms of the twelve. And we really don't know for sure. Some speculate it might be because of Matthew 19, 28, where it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The bottom line is that what we can know and what Luke wrote about is that the Psalms had predicted that Judas would need to be replaced and that there would be one that would, that would betray Jesus. And there was a, a couple Psalms that, that were quoted there in the passage that we just read. So it's amazing that David wrote a thousand years before in the Psalms that Judas was going to need, uh, need to be replaced. So this fulfilled prophecy pointed to the fact that there was a, a sovereign God Who had planned all of this out. So, really, rather than a treatise on why there are 12 apostles, this passage really focuses in on the sovereignty of God and that nothing is going to thwart God's plan. No one can thwart a sovereign God. Not even Roman soldiers who were hammering the nails into the feet and hands of Jesus, not corrupt political leaders, not a a crowd who was drunk on crucifixion. No one can thwart the plans of God. There's a passage in Romans 6 that talks about some martyrs who were entreating God to execute his justice, and it says this, that uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What I want you to notice is that those who had been killed, I mean, it's hard to get any worse than that. They had been martyred, killed for their faith. They were recognizing that they were serving a sovereign God. That's pretty cool. They are asking God to demonstrate his justice so that his glory can be manifested. He's a sovereign God. He's in control. He will execute his justice. Pretty important when you've been mistreated. I can put that in God's hands. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to get bitter. God will execute his justice. He has a plan. He knows what he is doing. So when you lose your job, God is still sovereign. When that loved one dies, God is still sovereign. And notice they are told to rest a little longer. Rest a little longer. The final chapter has not been written yet. And, and God is still in control. He's going to settle all scores. He's sovereign. And we can rest In any circumstance. I don't have to allow bitterness to fill my heart because things didn't turn out the way I wanted. Those who are firm in faith in a sovereign God can rest, just like John wrote about in Revelation, can rest a little longer. Fear does not have to rule our lives because we serve a sovereign God. There was an NPR story last year reported on a study done by a man by the name of Roger Hart, and in 1975, Hart conducted the study on where children felt safe to play, and he focused on 86 children between the ages of 3 and 12 in a small town in Vermont, And Hart would follow the kids through the day, documenting everywhere the children went by themselves. And he then took that information and he put it on physical maps that measured the distance that each child was allowed to go by themselves and what the average was for each age group. And Hart discovered that these kids had remarkable freedom, even four and five years old, traveling unsupervised throughout the neighborhood and as i read this i was thinking that's what we did in my neighborhood in northeast ohio we took our bikes and we'd go for miles nine or 10 years old just ride your bike all right and he mentioned that most of these kids basically ran the entire town all right and he said in the kids parents they weren't worried then in 2014 hart went back and he studied the offspring of these same children that he originally studied in the 70s. And what he saw is something quite different. In fact, he says it floored him. And I quote, they didn't. They just didn't have very far to take me. They just walked around their property. In other words, the huge circle of freedom that the kids had in the 70s was now just a tiny spot on his map. And Hart added this. He said, there is no free range outdoors. Even when the kids are older, parents now say, I need to know where you are at all times. And he said, the odd thing is, is that in that town, it was no more dangerous than it was in the 70s. Crime had not increased. So why was there this invisible leash between parent and child that had Tightened up so much. Hart concluded this. He said, the reason was fear. And fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Now my point in bringing this up is not to talk about our parenting styles, but that fear greatly limits our freedom and our ability to to function generously and openly. I'm certainly not suggesting we throw caution to the wind, but rather, for the Christian, a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God allows us to function without a debilitating fear. Now, obviously, we have to be prudent to protect our children. We, we lock our doors, we do other things, but we cannot fear all of the possibilities of danger and let that overcome us. But this is rather common. Now, for the Christian, we can expect that in this world there will be trouble, but yet God is still sovereign. Right? And that whatever befalls me, God will be there to help encourage. God has given us promises that he will strengthen us. But he's not given us a promise that there will be no trouble on earth. In fact, we read it this in James. And by the way, James was the first book chronologically of the New Testament and it was written during the diaspora or when all the Christians were dispersed because of persecution. So you have Christians being tortured, Christians being martyred, and this is what James writes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What he's saying is that despite what's going on, God is still working. God is still sovereign. He's still behind the scenes, working in and through you. He is executing his plan. And then we read further in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator While doing good. See, when you suffer, God is not asleep. When you suffer, God is still sovereign. I've told this story before, but when Janet was pregnant with our twins, and we had an ultrasound, and there were some issues, one was half the size of the other. And we had to go to St. Louis to have some special um, sonogram done. And the doctor there talked about abortion on one of the babies and basically gave us a prognosis that was not very good for one of our boys. And so the drive basically from St. Louis to Rolla was filled with tears. And then finally, I just got tired of the weeping, I just said, all right, we got to stop this. And usually, you don't say that to your wife, you know, stop this, all right. But we cannot continue to go down this road. And I said, now, here are the things that could possibly happen. Between, you know, death and life, we could have this, and I just started naming it. All these things that could possibly go wrong. And I said, you know what? That will be what God will allow, and God will strengthen us. He will outfit us, and we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay if this child doesn't live. We have to be okay no matter what happens, and we cannot sit here and keep basically torturing ourselves, thinking about all the possibilities. Whatever happens, we know God is in control. And Janet was like, you're right. And from Rolla to Springfield, we could dry up the tears. And perspective, we both had. I mean, we had, listen, it wasn't like it was over then, but it was a, it was a turning point. We still struggled, but we did realizing that there's a sovereign God. I'm not, I'm not pretending that there's no pain. I'm not pretending that it's all easy. But the idea that understanding that God is sovereign... He's not going to protect me from trouble. He will help me endure the trouble. And some will think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Christianity was about, you know, God is there to make me happy. God is there to fulfill my every wish. Listen, such a refrain is a trap that will lead you down a road of discontent, disappointment, disillusionment with God. I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And he can do with me whatever he wants for him to receive glory. So the injunction for the Christian to recall those words that John wrote in Revelation is, O sovereign Lord, holy and true And in him, I will rest. Again, that doesn't mean easy. Doesn't mean no trouble. Rest is my soul realizes, you know what? God's got this. We're going to be all right. Our soul can be at rest. It was because Peter and the 120 were assured of a God who was in control that they could face these unpleasant circumstances that they were now facing in Acts 1. Jesus had ascended. He was no longer physically with them. They're gathering in the upper room wondering what to do, and they have to replace one who had betrayed them. Great hurt, great disappointment with someone who had ministered with them. And Peter says, now we have to replace this guy. So one of the men who had Accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taking up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they are recounting the qualifications that have to be in place for a person to be considered as an apostle. And to be counted among the twelve, one had to have been a eyewitness to the public ministry of jesus from the from the baptism of christ all the way through to the resurrection including or, or to, to the ascension and including the resurrection Now what strikes me about that particular standard is that it is rooted in empirical evidence. He does not have the apostles sign some doctrinal code, some statement of faith from the right denomination. No, rather, he says, you guys have to have a conviction that was born out of your eyewitness testimony. They were first-hand witnesses. To the ministry of Christ. And the power of that eyewitness testimony stands as resounding affirmation to the life of Christ and the claims of the gospel that are enunciated in 1 Corinthians 13 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And guess what? I saw it. I was there. You've got guys with that kind of a conviction. It's no reason that the early church grew like it did. Listen, all other religions make some claim of revelation, you know, that that God spoke to their leader, you know, in a closet or, or behind some bush or whatever. But these are naked claims that one cannot verify. Christianity is unique in that it invites the normal test of history and to consider the evidence. Hundreds of eyewitness testimonies are at the core of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they are recorded in the four gospels. And by the way, it is not circular reasoning to use the four Gospels as a record for the testimony any more than it's circular reasoning to go to a, a history book and say, look, Lincoln was shot at the Ford Theater. The, the four Gospels are history books about the life of Christ. So naked claims of revelation stand in sharp contrast to the eyewitness testimony to the life of and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. And these 12 apostles had to have a a real-life conviction from being with Jesus and witnessing all that. People usually don't die for what they know to be a lie, right? I mean, there are people who have died because they believe something to be true, but, you know, maybe they were deceived. But that's why the resurrection of Christ is so crucial. All anyone had to do to disprove the resurrection is go to the body. Hey, look, there he is in the grave. But they couldn't do that. And so the religious leaders, what they wanted to do is they they tried to lie and say, uh, the disciples stole the body. Well, that was rather ludicrous, knowing how these disciples before that time were such cowards up to the point of the resurrection. And besides, such a lie can't spread very far, knowing that Jesus is walking around. I mean, that, that pretty much refutes your stuff about, you know, Jesus' body was stolen. So there was a clear standard that was given to be one of the 12. And I suppose if you were in that upper room with 120... You could say, well, you know, here, let's just get any warm body. And by the way, this is how, you know, a lot of churches might get leaders. Uh, Just throw any warm body out there, regardless of whether they have witnessed the resurrection, and let's just not worry about it. Let's just fill the spot, right? But integrity demanded that they uphold an apostolic standard. And persecution, the prospect of persecution, demanded that only those who were convinced of the resurrection of Christ could stand up to the detractors and the torturers and remain as faithful ambassadors for Christ. It's, an, it, it's a good lesson. One of the things I think we could take away from this is that spiritual leadership must, when we're choosing spiritual leaders, we should never settle for just a warm body. But only those who are truly qualified. And by the way, just because somebody's not in spiritual leadership in any official capacity doesn't mean that they're not qualified, but you get the point. You know, it's why here at our church we go through an extensive process that takes about eight to nine months to select an elder. Uh, The candidate and his wife, for instance, will, will interview with the elders then the candidate has to answer 50 questions related to the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And we just recently added a six-month internship that includes a biblical study that that person will do along with the rest of the elders. And he attends meetings with the elders to gauge how this person responds in the midst of a candid discussion, which not everybody can handle. And all this is done before the candidate is even presented to the church body. And then the church body has an opportunity to respond for a a couple weeks and say, hey, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever, upon this person. But each of these steps is bathed in prayer that we would be sensitive to God's leading. The point is this, that spiritual leadership demands a process to where you can select qualified people. And they put forward two, Joseph called and also, who, who was also called Justice, and, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, frankly, we know very little about these guys. In fact, we don't hear them mentioned after this episode. Uh, Tradition tells us that Matthias ministered in Ethiopia. We don't know that for sure, but that's what tradition says. We do know this for sure. Uh, They're never mentioned, but notice what they did in selecting Matthias. Verse 24 says, they prayed, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So God, you know the heart of the candidates, and I pray that if there's something there that might disqualify that person, would you reveal that to us? And Lord, you know the hearts of the people who are choosing or selecting this person, and if there's maybe any favoritism or bias, indicate that to us so that we can be wise in selecting this person. So they were honestly seeking God in making a decision And that's all that we can do when we have two, apparently, equal choices. I mean, both of these guys were apparently qualified, but they spent time in prayer. Jesus did the same thing when he chose his disciples, spent considerable time in prayer before he approached them to follow him. And so whether it's a a staff person, a, a pastor, or needing to get a small group leader, teacher, ministry leader of any kind... Prayer is indispensable to that process. verse 26 says they cast lots. And history tells us that usually the way that was done is you put rocks in a jar. You might paint a a color on uh, the rocks and then pour out a rock. And that was your choice. And apparently that was not too uncommon. Even Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, we're never commanded that we have to do it that way. But the point here in that verse in Proverbs is that, listen, the Lord is the one who ultimately decides. And it's not chance that decides a matter, even if you're casting a lot. And This whole idea of chance versus the sovereignty of God, uh, this is something that I think certainly our culture struggles with, and our culture has adopted the idea that basically we humans have come on the scene by what? Chance. Right? I mean, it says that nature is cold to humanity, that only the strong will survive. And in the end, there is no higher purpose. There's only biological existence. So we're just, you know, spokes in the wheel or or, or machines. In fact, in a famous episode of Star Trek, the characters debate where the Android Lieutenant Commander Data is a machine. He, of course, is, and Captain Picard retorts, it is not relevant. We humans, too, are machines, merely machines of a different type. That is straight out of the pages of evolutionary naturalism. And that stands in sharp contrast that God is sovereign in the universe. And as a result human beings that were created by this God have volition or choice. We just sang earlier of a Trinitarian God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. has a Trinitarian God, he, he related amongst himself in the Trinity, and so we are created in the image of God. We too are relational beings, beings of choice, beings that can choose. We live in a moral universe that God has created, and we can choose to uh, to live under that morality that God has created or, or not. And of course, People kick against that idea that we live in a moral universe or even that we have free choice. But this too, you cannot deny because you can deny all you want whether you live in a moral universe or not. But the fact is, even the hardcore atheist chooses things, says things that Show that we live in a moral universe when he talks about maybe the evil of this or the evil of that or people who are intolerant. Well, how could that even be bad if morality doesn't exist? You can't escape it because we live in a moral universe. That's the world that God has created. So the question really becomes is this. In the choices we make, Are we going to make those choices in light of the sovereign God who exists and with his wisdom? Or are we going to make those choices independent of God? My friends, I want you to be encouraged today that God has provided for us. Many of us have choices that we have to make. And you can't figure out whether I should do A or B. You know, you don't have a scripture that says go to this place, take that job, make that investment. You're just trying to figure out what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? And, but God has given us his word to guide us. He's given us prayer, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to guide us into a choice. And sometimes it's almost like you flip a coin and you realize this. You know what, God, I know that you love me. I know you got my back. I'm going to do A. Frankly, that's the way I came to marry my wife. I was trying to figure out whether I should marry her or not. And I remember going to the park, writing down all the things I needed to have in a Christian wife. And it wasn't an audible voice. It was like God was just, you know, tapping me and saying, you're an idiot. All right? You need to... <laughs> I get that often, by the way. Um <laughs> But it was like, you need to be more concerned about what goes into a Christian husband and be that kind of man. And then I started reading the scriptures about delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And it was like God just gave me a peace. And this is honestly what I came to. And I, I can still remember it. I was in uh, Busick State Park. And, and it was like God just saying, okay, listen, I've got your back. Don't you think I'm big enough? You, you want to do what I you know, want you to do. I, I get that. So don't you think I'm big enough that if you're making the wrong decision, I'll stop you? And I went with that kind of confidence. I said, the desire in my heart is to marry this woman. I mean, I would be an idiot if I didn't marry that woman, all right? And that has proven to be a good decision, let me tell you, all right? Sometimes you don't know. But I can rest in God's sovereignty. And I, I honestly, I can tell you that in, it'll be 36 years this year, I have never doubted it. Have we had problems? Of course we have. All right? There have been a couple seasons, honestly, I didn't know whether we'd make it or not. That's the truth. But I never doubted whether God put us together. I knew that was the case. It wasn't, and God didn't have to write it on the wall. I just was certain of his leading that he's a sovereign God, that he loves me. You think he's going to let his child go in a direction? When when you're honestly seeking the will of God, is he going to just, you know, let you go in a wrong direction? No. Let me ask you this. How do you think it would impact me or impact us if we doubted God's sovereignty and I doubted whether I made the right decision with my wife? What do you do then in the middle of an argument or in the middle of a hard time? You start thinking, Man, you know, I shouldn't have married that person. And how many Christians go down that road, right? And you know where that ends up. To know that God is in control, to know that that God has put us together, to know that the sovereignty of God is at work, that's what allows me to keep going with great confidence. Let's pray.